Friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 1. We've been considering the death and resurrection of Jesus uh, as much of the Christian community throughout the world has considered, even in recent weeks, the uh, Good Friday through Easter Sunday uh, worship of Christ who did die and was raised. And we've been contemplating that, and, and lately, and for a few weeks anyway, we'll be considering some of the benefits that accrue to us through the finished, accomplished work of Jesus. And so tonight we're turning to Leviticus chapter 1. You did not mishear me when I said that. Now, fear not if you're visiting tonight or if you find this to be your home. We are not beginning a year-long study on Leviticus. This is a one-off sermon on this text. It's safe to come back next week. Uh, this is the book. As you, know, as you have tried, perhaps, to read your way through the Bible, Genesis is filled with Stories of people, Abraham and Isaac and Joseph, and half of Exodus is the same way. Moses and the, 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 the powerful, miraculous events. And then halfway through Exodus, you get the Ten Commandments, and then you get instructions on building the center of worship. And the reading can slow down for some of us. And you finish Exodus and you think, on to the next book. And then it's Leviticus. And Leviticus is hard going. It's the place where many of us quit reading the Bible through. And um, I don't want to scare you, but let's just be honest. That's Leviticus. Now, tonight, we're just going to look at one chapter, one big idea. And I think you'll find, Lord willing, it's, it's easier than you might at first have thought. Uh, Leviticus chapter 1 begins to tell us about the blood and guts of Christianity. Now that seems like an odd thing to say. This is the Old Testament book of the Jews, but it actually is also the book of the gospel for all of God's people throughout all ages. Now it's, um, I say gospel, good news. It's, it's good news, but it's good news in shadow form. That's the way things come to us in the Old Testament. It's, it's a little obscure. It's not always easy to understand. How does this teach me about good news in Jesus? But it, but it does. We, we might say this, that, that in the coming of Christ, hung on a cross, God has placed the spotlight of the universe on his son. As we look back upon the cross, past him into the Old Testament times, a shadow falls from the cross. Upon the Old Testament, a shadow. And it's in that, that shadow that God gave to his people the hope of, of Jesus, the hope of a Messiah. Uh, but it's hard to see. It's, it's sort of like an artist who's, who's taken out of a pad and pencil and simply drawn uh, with lines the outline of the gospel. But with the coming of Jesus... The, the, the artist has taken paint in full color and laid it thick upon the page. It's brighter, it's clearer, it's, it's easier to see how attractive it is. The gospel in Leviticus is harder to see. And yet, when you see it, when you see Jesus in it, it's gloriously helpful. And so I want you to consider Leviticus chapter 1 tonight. Jesus as the burnt 
offering. And just before we read the text, I want to outline the entire chapter for you because it can be hard even to hear the passage, but we're going to read it. In verses 1 and 2, you have an introduction to not just chapter 1, but actually the whole book and the first seven chapters filled with sacrifices, how to do them, what to do. Verse 3 is about the sacrifice called the burnt offering. And then in verses 3 through 9, you have what to do if your burnt offering, and you're an Israelite, we won't be offering these offerings here. What to do if you're an Israelite, if your burnt offering is uh, is a bull? And then verses uh, 10 through 13, what to do if your offering is from the flock, either sheep or goat. Verses 14 through 17, what to do if your offering is from the birds, either pigeons or turtle doves. And so that's your outline. Let me invite you to consider this passage and let's look for Jesus in it. Let me read now the word of God. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. That he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or the goats, he shall bring a male without blemish. And he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. And he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall offer it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Oh, Father, help us to understand 
Oh, help us to view this rightly. Keep my lips from error. May the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I know it's strange. How should we think about this? Think about it like this. For me, in my own experience, there are a few things that cause me as much insecurity as lining up to be picked for a team. When I go to campus minister staff training with hundreds of other campus ministers and we take a break and go out on the football field and there are 40 or 50 guys lined up hoping to be picked by team captains, Okay, I want to duck and hide at the back. I'm like 10 years older than most of the guys. And, and really the prayer is, Lord, let me not be last picked. I'm hoping they recognize, though I'm fat and gray-haired and probably slow, I might have some better qualities to commend me to the team. Well, it's, it's nerve-wracking. But I think we've all been forced by our world in which we live, to ask that question in a variety of ways. Do I have the qualifications that make me acceptable to these people, whoever they are? If you are looking for work, interviewing, this is the question in our mind. What are the strengths that commend me to them? What weaknesses are they willing to overlook? If you've asked somebody on a date, And they've gone with you, and you've asked for a second date and not received it. You're asking, what would it have been, uh, what did I need to be acceptable to that person? If you went on a date and didn't get asked on a second, you're asking that question too. Uh, Fraternity and sorority kids at University of Arkansas ask this question when they don't get bids. You understand the question. It's the kind of question that can make us neurotic. What am I missing? Why was I rejected? What more must I be to be acceptable? What do these people want from me? Now, if you can understand uh, the the tension in that, uh, the insecurity in that, the, the longing to have assurance of acceptability in that, then you understand something of what it is like to ask the question, what do I need to be acceptable to come before God in worship? What, what do I need to be acceptable in his presence forever? What does he want? What's he looking for? And tonight, through the burnt offering, you have an answer to that question. And we want to ask that question. Because, because this text is not meant to leave all of this a mystery to you. For the Israelites, it was actually meant to... Rather than leave them guessing about that question, it was meant to identify exactly what it is they need to be acceptable in the presence of the everlasting and holy God. And so we want to ask three questions. What does God want from me? Second question, what is God willing to take instead of me? And thirdly, What does that mean for my life? And so if that sounds to you like we're going to talk about you, Jesus, and the Christian life, you're exactly right. But the first question is this. What does God want from people as he gave it to the Israelites? 
for them to draw near to him. Notice in the first place, even at verses 1 and 2, that the answer to that question is not left up to us. He doesn't say, form your own opinion about how it is you can be right with me and accepted by me. No, let me tell you the answer to that question. And so he says to them, when you come to me, this is what you need to do. He's in charge. He's presidential. He's greater than that. We don't waltz into his presence and say, whatever I'm bringing with me, it ought to be good enough for you. No, God says, here's what you do. Verses 1 and 2, tell them when they come to bring an offering. So, because we don't make the rules about approaching him and he does, what is it that he expected of the Israelites? And what does that mean for you and I on this side of the cross? Well, for the Israelites, you have to understand what's happening. God has placed himself physically In the camp of the Israelites, he has told them, build a tent and I will dwell in the midst of my people in the holy place, the most holy place in the tent. I will be among you. He lives with them. He travels with them. He moves with them. An Israelite might say, how can I get close to him? Well, come to the door of the tent. How can I get through the door of the tent? Well, here's what you need to do to get through the door of the tent, even closer to God. See, the purpose of the tabernacle was to help people know that God was close, God was accessible, but be careful. There's only certain ways into his presence. And if you want to approach him and be near him, you need to come this way because he decides Now, let's ask the question, what does he want from us on this side of the cross to be near to him? The burnt offering given to the Israelites says what God wants is you, all of you, the whole totality of you, and only all of you is acceptable, and anything less than that is unacceptable. Why do I say that? Where do I get that? Well, that's the meaning of the burnt offering. And I want you to see that this is what God has always wanted and still wants. And I want to do that. I want to show you that from both what Moses tells us here in Leviticus and also what the prophets later say about burnt offerings and what Jesus himself says. Notice, uh, notice the ritual of the burnt offering here. Whether you're offering from the herd or the flock or from birds, okay, you bring an animal to the tent of meeting. The priest, you know, says, all right, this one's in, you know, perfectly good condition. It's acceptable. You lay your hands on the head of the animal. You kill the animal. This is participatory worship. The priest catches the blood of the animal and throws it on the sides of the altar, and you flay the animal, cut it to pieces, you clean off the unclean portions, and you lay it on the altar to be wholly consumed by fire in the presence of the Lord. And it's a pleasing aroma to him. Now, why does this teach us that what God has always wanted is all of you? Because of the language here, the burnt offering is called the holocaust. From the Hebrew hala, referring to 
the burning and the smoke of it going up to the Lord. And it is the only one of the five great sacrifices of the Old Testament in which the entire animal is burned up to the Lord. See, if you, if you brought other kinds of offerings, a portion of the meat would be cut off and given to the priest for him to eat. It was part of his daily wage. Or part of it would be cut off and given back to you as a celebratory meal. You would go to worship, receive back some food. You might bring friends and family with you and you'd have a party and eat in the presence of the Lord. But in this one alone, the entirety of it is given wholly to the Lord. It belongs wholly to him. And what the worshiper is supposed to be saying is something like this. Everything I am, everything is yours, Lord. I'm wholly committed to you. Where you want me to go, I will go. What you want me to say, I will say. What you want me to be, I will be. What you want me to give away, I will give away. I'm always and forever perfectly yours, Lord. That, that explains why. When you read like prophets of the Old Testament that come later, like Hosea or Micah, and you're reading in the Old Testament and you read things like, I don't desire burnt offerings. God says to his people, I don't want your burnt offerings. And and you're puzzled. I thought you told us in Leviticus to offer burnt offerings. And now you're saying, I don't want them. Well, what's going on with that? Well, here's what's going on with it. Listen to Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. The prophet Hosea. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Or Micah chapter 6, verse 6. In a very famous passage. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself to God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Response, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. You see, the point of the prophets is what God has fundamentally always wanted was that you would have steadfast love and the knowledge of God. That you would do justice and to love kindness and walk humbly with your God. That's what he's always wanted, not this animal given in your place. This is why when you encounter Jesus in the New Testament giving that very famous statement in response to the question of the lawyer, the lawyer who's trying to trip Jesus up and get him in all kinds of trouble, and he asks him, Jesus, you know, what's the most important thing? Jesus says, the most important thing is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the follow-up to that conversation immediately in Mark 12, if you want to look there sometime, verse Uh, verses that follow in verse 32 the scribe says to Jesus you're right teacher to love God with all our heart all the understanding all the strength love one neighbor as oneself is much more 
than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And here's the kicker. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You see what Jesus is saying to him? You get it. You get it. God doesn't want the burnt offering. He wants you holy from the heart, completely his in every way. That's what he wants. And it's not too much to ask. It's his right as your creator. He made you, of course. He owns you to refuse would be the height of ingratitude. It's not too much to ask. He is your king. You're under his authority and he expects you to follow him. And to refuse is the height of rebellion. It's also not too much to ask. He He is your lover. He desires you as a husband, his bride. He loved you and gave himself for you. And to refuse to be holy is, is to scorn his love. It's not too much to ask that you be all for him. But you and I haven't been. Not one of us has been always fully, completely his. And when you see that, Jesus says, then you're not far from the kingdom. Because if you see that, you'll know that you don't just waltz into the presence of God, offer your credentials and your qualifications to be pleasing in his sight by who you are and what you have done. You don't meet the qualifications. And if you see that, you will see that you are spiritually bankrupt before God, that you have nothing to offer him, but the good news is he has everything to offer you. You haven't given all of you to him, but he gives all for you. If, if this is what God wants and we haven't given it to him, we might ask, well, what's he willing to take instead? And just asking that question ought to shock you for a second. It ought to shock us that that I would ask the question, well, what's he willing to have instead? I mean, if he's a good God and he's the judge of all the earth and he cares about his own honor and he expects this and none of us come through with it, you might think he would say, I want nothing else. So I don't want you. But that is not the way it is. He offers you something. For you to offer him as an offering to the Lord, to be acceptable in his sight. He offers you a substitute, his own beloved son. And this is what Jesus did. Jesus fulfilled the qualifications of a perfect person. And he has become for us the true atoning burnt offering offered wholly unto the Lord. For us and in our place. This is what the writer of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament means when in chapter 10, verse 5 and following, the writer says about Jesus, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and here he quotes Jesus, quoting the Old Testament, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared For me. 
In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Jesus, quoting, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So Jesus has come to do the will of God, and he did it. And the writer draws this conclusion, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 8. When Jesus said above, you've neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. He does away with the burnt offerings in order to establish his own doing of the will of God perfectly and offering himself wholly unto the Lord. So what will God take instead of you? He'll take Jesus. And he is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. He is a qualified substitute. That is all hinted at in in Leviticus chapter 1. It's all uh, something that becomes clearer and clearer as Jesus Comes. But notice just a few things to highlight back in Leviticus chapter 1. That in verse 3, the substitute you offer is to be without defect. It's a perfect male substitute. In other offerings later in Leviticus, male or female can be offered. Here it's only the male, the costliest, that's acceptable, and it must have no imperfections. Because Jesus is sinless, undefiled, Pure and perfect, spotless, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In verse 4 in Leviticus 1, you lay your hands on the animal. In other words, you bring it to the entrance that it may be accepted before the Lord. You lay your hands on the head of the animal. You set your hands. Literally, you lay an object heavily on it yourself. Because your sin and your guilt have lay heavily on you, and you are now, as it were, transferring them to the animal, which is about to die. In other words, what's pictured in Leviticus 1 is faith. What's pictured is not, listen to me, what's pictured in Leviticus 1 is not, if you would just surrender all, then Jesus will save you. What's pictured is leaning on Jesus because he surrendered all. It's a picture of faith. Faith isn't offering everything of yours to God so he'll save you. Faith is leaning on Jesus. Who did that? So faith in the Old Testament was not staring at your hands on the animal. And wondering, are my fingertips pointed in the right direction? Did my pinky get off the head and down the neck and invalidate the whole thing? What's, what's, what's not being asked of the worshiper is asking the question, did I put too much pressure or too little pressure on the head of the animal when I offered this thing? No. Look, if those are the questions running through your mind in the Old Testament, you walked home with a friend, the friend would say to you, forget about that. Did the animal get killed? Did the priest accept it? Then you're good. It's substituted in your place. See, what's being emphasized here is not the purity of your faith, the perfection of your offering to God. What is being emphasized here is the object of your faith and its acceptability to God. Jesus is acceptable. And so, verse 4, it makes 
atonement. It completely covers all your failures. It completely substitutes for your lack of obedience. It is in your place and on your behalf, and God is pleased. And so in Leviticus, it says, well, when it's burned up, it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. He's pleased with it. Just as when Jesus came, and he came into his public ministry, and the Lord looked on 30 years of his life, the Lord said of Jesus, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. You're pleasing. This is the beauty of good news. Everything you need to be right with God has been done for you in Jesus. God accepts his son, a qualified substitute in your place. Now, very quickly then, how does any of this change us? If God has always wanted all of you, but he takes Jesus instead, how does it change us? Let me just highlight three things from Leviticus and in light of the cross. Number one, you can find rest and joy for your soul in a way that even the Old Testament Israelite couldn't quite get. Now, were they forgiven? Absolutely. Were they acceptable? Absolutely. But, but listen, the burnt offering sacrifice was the most frequently offered one in the Old Testament. It was offered morning and evening. It was offered every important day, including Sabbath, and at every single festival. Whether you were ritually unclean or had just given childbirth or you were leprous and pronounced clean or you had a bodily discharge or whatever it was in your book of Leviticus, you offered a burnt offering. It was an incredibly busy place to be at the temple to see all these offered. And, and you know what it said again and again and again to the Israelites? There will never be a day you do not need a substitute. But the true perfect substitute that ends all substitutes has not yet come. You need something even better than this animal. This is kind of like how when when you and I um, have been given medication by a physician and every morning perhaps you go and you open the medicine uh, cabinet and you see a pill bottle there and you remember I need to take these. What does that remind you of? It reminds you that you are not yet healed. It is a constant reminder that your wholeness and health has not yet fully come. And there is a way in which all those Old Testament sacrifices again and again, year after year said, the true Lamb of God has not yet come. But now that he has come, we offer no more. There's no more slaughter. The one great perfect substitute has come for us. There is freedom in that. There is rest in that. There is joy in that. And I want to say to you, as you plan to come to partake of the Lord's Supper tonight, you need to know that this supper proclaims his death until he comes. And it is done. And to receive bread and wine the emblems of his body and blood, and to eat it in faith in Jesus is to receive him and be renewed in your assurance that he did it for you. He died for you. He makes you right with God. This meal is not for you. 
if you aren't looking to be right with God through Jesus the substitute because nothing else is adequate. So don't come if you're not believing in Jesus, but do come if he is yours through faith and you want him to get you safely home to the Father. But secondly, how does this change us? We're reminded in Leviticus 1 not to show favoritism among the brethren. Why are there different kinds of burnt offerings? Bulls, flock, even pigeons, turtle doves, so that everyone, rich or poor, can come. If you can't afford a bull, you bring a lamb. And if you can't afford a lamb, you bring a bird. And what God is saying is, I do not play favorites. And access to me is not denied by your poverty, by your low stature and influence and power and wealth accumulation. Oh no, God does provide, if the rich are to come, he provides something appropriate to their wealthy condition. But if the poor are to come, well then they can bring just a lowly turtle dove or a pigeon, the most common of bird. This is in fact what Mary offered after her birth, even of Jesus. Anybody can come who wants to come through the substitute because God isn't playing favorites. And I just simply want to say to us, God calls us not to play favorites either. He accepts all who come to him through Jesus. And he invites us to accept all as brothers and sisters in the faith, as family in community, all who come to him through Jesus. We belong to one another. We should never look down our noses, though we do, at people who are different than us. We should never condescend, though we do. But that is not the ideal. God isn't like that. He says, don't be like that either. And so I want to say to you, as you come to this meal, I want you to remember, we not only come to remember the death of Christ, we actually come as a family, brothers and sisters, gathered around this table, With the one most important thing in common, Jesus. And we all partake of the same bread and the same wine. Black or white, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, male or female. All who believe in Jesus are one in Jesus. That's what this meal says. And thirdly, I want you to see this. What do we learn from this? If God has done all of this for us, I want to say this to you from the New Testament. We are urged, therefore, to give ourselves to God in gratitude for Jesus who gave himself for us. See, the logic of the good news is not Jesus gave all so I can sit back, fold my arms, relax, and be a spectator. But the logic of the gospel is actually Jesus gave all for me so that I would walk with him. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says towards the end of that long letter, which for 11 chapters, he says, God has been merciful to give you his son. He says, I urge you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Paul is saying, look, your obedience doesn't impress God. Your marathon quiet times don't purchase anything from God. You could do service projects till you're, till you're dead from exhaustion. And you wouldn't step your way up into heaven. None of that is for that. But we do offer ourselves to serve God. Not to gain his favor, but because in Jesus we already have it. And so as we eat this meal, we come to receive and be reassured that we are in God's grace and God's grace is for us. And to receive God's help to walk with him. Come to this meal saying, I want to live for you, Lord Jesus, because you lived and died for me. Amen. Let's respond in singing hymn number 500, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. The first three stanzas before the supper. <laughs>